Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening. Uh, my name is Justin Stearns. I'm Associate Professor of Arab Crossroads Studies at New York University here at NYU Abu Dhabi. And it is my great pleasure to be able to introduce the speaker this evening, Professor Jonathan Bloom. <clears throat> So Professor Bloom was the Norman Jean Calderwood University Professor of Islamic and Asian Art at Boston College and the Hamid bin Khalifa Endowed Chair of Islamic Art at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he, at this point in his career, it is difficult to offer any kind of introduction that does justice to his great contributions to the study of the fields of uh, Islamic art and architecture. Over the course of his career, he's offered undergraduate seminars on such subjects as varied as the, the arts of medieval Spain, the history of Cairo. His research has explored the history and development of the minaret, the history of paper, about which we're going to hear quite a bit this evening, and the art of the Fatimid dynasty in North Africa and Egypt. He's written several books along with his, his wife, Sheila Blair, um, co-holder of the Calderwood Chair, with whom he also served as principal consultant on the acclaimed documentary Islam Empire of Faith. And I was just learning this evening, in part, that his, his wonderful book, uh, Paper Before Print, which I my camera is not going to capture well when I hold it this way, but I encourage you to, to get hold of a copy because it is in print, is, is um, has been translated into Arabic and is the subject of considerable conversation here in the Arabian Peninsula. And it's in part <clears throat> that conversation that makes us so happy to be able to welcome here with us this evening. Uh, Professor Bloom, thank you so much for joining us here in Abu Dhabi, albeit from New Hampshire. We hope to be able to welcome you here and offer hospitality in person at some point in the future. And with no further ado, I'm going to, to hand it over to you. Following Professor Bloom's talk, we will have time for, a, uh, for questions. Anyway, thank you very much. Okay, now let's see. Uh, there we go. Excellent. Okay. Um, anyway, thank you, Justin. It's um, uh, I'm delighted to have been invited. Um, you know, it's as we were saying, it's absolutely amazing to be able to talk to you from the sort of colorful fall foliage studded hills of New Hampshire um, in uh, halfway around the world in Abu Dhabi. Um, I stumbled on this uh, subject quite by accident about 30 years ago when I was interested in the history of plans, architectural plans in uh, Islamic architecture. And I realized that no one had actually written about the plans and what they might have been made on. And so I wondered what they would have been made on. And then that got me interested in the history of paper. And as you heard, uh, I wrote a book which was published about 20 years ago, and just this year, it's been translated into Arabic. So, you know, the uh, wheels of scholarship uh, grind very slowly, but, you know, eventually they grind. Um, and I hope that this, uh, the translation will make um, this uh, interesting and fascinating story accessible to a larger audience um, in the world in which it actually happened. Um, so just as Abu Dhabi sits in the middle of the vast swath of the traditional lands of Islam, which stretch across Eurasia and Africa from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic, I thought I'd start this version of the story 
in the middle. And that is during the age of exploration in the 16th century, the first Europeans, particularly who were, uh, many of whom were Jesuits, to encounter paper in the Far East were convinced that the Chinese must somehow have learned papermaking from the ancient Egyptians. Uh, two centuries later, the French lawyer and judge, Antoine Gaspard Boucher d'Argy, began his long article about paper for the Encyclopedia by Diderot and D'Alembert, which was published in 1765, by discussing the origins of paper, which he called a marvelous invention that is of such great use in life, which records the memory of deeds and immortalizes men. He noted that the word paper, papier in French, of course, came from the Greek word for the Egyptian material papyrus. And he differentiated European paper that was made from rags from Egyptian paper, which he believed was made from papyrus, as well as from cotton paper of the Byzantines. And that was this thing called carta bambikina and from Chinese and Japanese papers. He believed that the manufacture of European rag paper had evolved from papyrus, but was an Egypt, a European invention, either by Germans, Italians, or Byzantine refugees in Switzerland. That one I'd never understood. Anyway, he did note that some scholars believed that rag paper had come from the Orient, because there were many ancient paper manuscripts in Arabic and other Oriental languages. But he largely dismissed this, the, the possibility that the Saracens of Spain had brought knowledge of paper, of rag paper, to Europe. Of course, he was quite wrong. Chinese sources universally attribute the invention of paper, which is one of the four great Chinese inventions, along with gunpowder, the magnetic compass, and printing, to a certain figure known as Tsai Lun, at the beginning of the second century of the Common Era. And you see a postage stamp with the famous Ceylon on it. Um, uh, but Chinese archeologists have found earlier samples of paper in remote and arid regions of, of uh, Central Asia that predate Ceylon by several centuries. Now, I should say at the start that there's a universal trend in pre-modern history to attribute great historical developments to the acts of specifically named individuals. So you always want to say somebody invented it rather than it was invented. And we will encounter this problem again. Paper is a mat of cellulose fibers, which come from plants. Um, beaten together in the presence of water and collected on the screen and dried. And you can see here a picture of this random assortment of, of the, um, the fibers in paper. It owes its particular strength, and I swear this is the last scientific diagram I'm going to, well, next to the last one, uh, to the beating of cellulose fibers in the presence of water. And it creates microfibrils and allows something called hydrogen bonding, such that the material is physically and chemically combined. So that it not only has the, the interlocking of the fibers because they're touching each other, but they're chemically bonded together, as you can see from the little yellow 
uh, dots that connect the different fibers. It can be made from virtually anything that contains cellulose, that is flax or hemp or cotton or wood or whatever, but never from animal protein fibers, such as wool or silk, because they don't have that um, characteristic of being able to be combined chemically as well. It seems to have been invented in southeastern China, but Chinese Buddhists soon carried paper and papermaking throughout East, South, and Central Asia as they searched for uh, and transmitted Buddhist texts. In humid south, southeastern China, papermakers had used the fibers from various local shrubs, such as paper mulberry, bamboo, rami, um, and others, but in arid Central Asia, paper was made, had to be made from pre-processed vegetal fibers, such as rags and old ropes, as well as from such the plants that were possible to grow there, such as flax and cotton. Just over a century ago, European explorers, such as Mark Oral Stein and Paul Pelio, discovered a huge cache of paper documents in the Mogao Caves near Dunhuan in Western China. The extremely dry climate preserved paper from early times and showed how paper had spread, um, paper and papermaking had spread from Southeast China into Central Asia. And here you see the rolls of paper scrolls at the bottom of the picture. They also found early evidence of printing, um, such as the famous Diamond Sutra, which is now in the British Museum, a British Library, which was printed in 868 and is generally considered to be the first printed book. And this is the frontispiece of the um, scroll. Other documents discovered at other Central Asian sites such as the fifth century ancient letters, which were written in Sogdian script, uh, are presumably the contents of a mailbag that was destined uh, for Samarkand, which is now in Uzbekistan. And these letters uh, indicate that paper was used widely throughout Central Asia, not only by religious people, but also by merchants who were uh, corresponding with other traders um, throughout the whole region in the period before the uh, Islamic conquests in the late 7th century. It's often said that Muslims captured Chinese papermakers at the Battle of Talas in 751, where the Muslim forces met the Chinese forces um, in Central Asia. But that's just a story, just like the story of Tsai Lun, which was invented by a later medieval author about three centuries after the supposed events in question to show that Muslims knew that paper came from China. Um, as I said, much like the story of Tsai Lun. So rather than saying paper was invented in China and came, you know, came to uh, the uh, Islamic lands, you say, ah, the, we captured uh, three, uh, we captured some Chinese papermakers. Paper and papermaking was immediately adopted by the bureaucrats of uh, Islamic societies who needed vast quantities of documents to administer an empire that stretched from Central Asia to the Atlantic, which is missing on my map. 
Um, paper was the perfect solution to this problem of uh, what to write the documents on. Previously, um, in the Mediterranean world, uh, there were only two, uh, two flexible uh, supports for writing that were known. Um, one of them uh, was papyrus, which had been used for thousands of years, from about uh, 3000 BC. Um, the ancient Egyptians had used from used papyrus, which was made from a reed that, that grew along the Nile. The fresh reeds were cut into lengths, into strips, and uh, were cut into lengths and then into strips. And these strips were laid at right angles to each other. They, they were pressed together to form sheets and held together by their sticky sap. Um, and then the sheets were pasted together into rolls. Um, and these rolls were stiff enough that you didn't need to hold, put, put it on a board or a desk or something to write on. And you can see here the, um, the scribe is writing, his pen is missing, but he, he's writing on papyrus that he holds in his hand. And the Egyptians wrote on papyrus from right to left. Um, and uh, so they joined their sheets with the, um, uh, I mean, for, yeah, from right to left. So they joined their sheets with the right one over the left one so that the, their writing, their pen wouldn't catch on the join between the sheets. They exported, the Egyptians exported uh, papyrus to uh, to uh, throughout the Mediterranean, and the Greeks adopted it, but they wrote from left to right, and so they turned the scrolls around and used them in the other direction, um, so that their pens wouldn't catch on them. And here is a Greek text on papyrus found in Egypt. The early Muslims continued to use papyrus for correspondence, um, and so here we have a receipt in the Halili collection. Uh, for 13 U's, which is dated um, in 723. And I think you can all see at the bot bottom, the, on the, the bottom left, it says Sena Arba. Um, so, you know, you could, and the, the, the rest of it is fairly, fairly legible, although it doesn't have dots on it. Um, the second material used in the Mediterranean basement was parchment, which was very strong and very durable. It could be made anywhere one had an animal, sheep, goats, or whatever was appropriate, um, calves. But the skin was removed, dehaired, soaked in lime, and, the and then scraped under tension as it dried. Parchment had been used for millennia by the Hebrews, who made their Torah scrolls from the material. And it was also used by the early Christians, who used it at the same time as they adopted the new form of the book, the codex form of the book that is a book with separate leaves copied on both sides of the page for their scriptures, the Bible. Parchment had the advantage that it stood up better to folding than did papyrus, which worked best as a roll. The disadvantage was that you needed to kill an animal to get about a square meter of writing material. Although bureaucrats in the land of Islam began to use paper quite early, early Muslims always used parchment but not papyrus for copying the Quran, probably following the examples of the Jews and the Christians. Muslims initially copied the Quran on parchment sheets in today, in what we would today call a portrait format, although they eventually chose to use a horizontal landscape format 
perhaps to distinguish their books from those of other religions. Paper, however, had several advantages over papyrus and parchment. Unlike papyrus, it could be made anywhere that cellulose and water were available. And unlike parchment, it didn't require killing an animal to get its skin, so it was significantly cheaper. Uh, few, if any, examples of such early paper from the, survive from the Islamic lands, apart from a few chance finds in archaeological sites, such as these uh, two uh, two examples um, which were discovered in Iran. There you can see that we have the fronts and the backs of these sheets. Although the texts of many early Arabic documents, which were presumably once written on paper, have been preserved in later compilations, very few actual paper documents survive from before the 11th century. And the earliest that I know of is an exceptional group of decrees from the ruler of Egypt in the 11th and 12th century to the monks of the monastery of St. Catherine at Mount Sinai. And you can see the, um, the size of this document from the hand of the person who's holding it um, rolled. And this is a typical um, uh, decree, which is a vertical scroll rather than a horizontal scroll. So for government decrees, it would have been um, held vertically. And lest you think that the, the spacing between the lines is a sign of the, how cheap paper was, it's quite the reverse. And that this is the ruler who is writing um, a, a decree and so therefore showing off how profligate he can be with the, um, with, with the paper, the material. The other thing you might notice is that the there's a join in the sheet right at the bottom of the screen, um, and that the, the writing sort of goes just a little bit over it. And whereas today we would probably avoid writing over the joins, in general, in medieval times, people wrote over the joins to make sure that they um, that people didn't insert extra sheets or change the meaning. This um, uh, this format, the vertical format, continues into the 13th century um, here with the Mongols. This is a Mongol decree. Um, and you can see instead of not only do the, does the writing go over the joins, but here these seals jo are placed over the joins between the sheets to make sure that someone didn't change it. And again, continues into the um, uh, 16th century. And this is a degree of Sultan Suleiman, the Ottoman ruler. So the same format continues for centuries and centuries. Under Islam, the unification of West Asia with the Western and Southern shores of the Mediterranean basin, with a shared religion and a shared language, um, if not always political unity, meant that paper and papermaking spread remarkably quickly from Central Asia and Iran to, and ba to Baghdad, and then to uh, Damascus, and across North Africa to the Iberian Peninsula over the course of barely 200 years. Spanish Muslim writers mentioned paper before the year 1000, and even Spanish Christians were using paper to fill out the pages in manuscripts otherwise made of parchment leaves. There are two very interesting exceptions, which I won't be able to talk about very much today. One of them 
Although Muslims settled in parts of northern India and western India by the 8th century, India was not interested in paper until the 13th or 14th centuries, although Chinese Buddhists must have brought knowledge of it there much, much earlier. And it seems that Indians were content to use their traditional medium of the leaves of the talapap palm for writing. The second exception is that although Islam reached West Africa at the beginning of the second millennium, there is absolutely no evidence that West African Muslims ever made paper, despite the availability of the appropriate plants and water. And it suggests that the nature of conversion was different in West Africa, and that Muslims there were content to import manuscripts from metropolitan centers elsewhere, whether in Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, or Spain, and eventually from Venice. Throughout the central Islamic lands, however, Muslims began to use paper enthusiastically. Books on theology, such as this one by Abu Ubaid, on unusual terms in the traditions of the prophet, um, is now in the Leiden University Library. Um, it is considered dated to 866. It is considered to be the oldest dated Arabic book on paper. Uh, the early Islamic papers were uh, typically brownish because of the difficulty of getting white fibers, that if you had brown fibers, you made brown paper. Um, but there was some variation, as you will see. The books on all sorts of subjects were written. Um, the ones I'm showing you are illustrated because as an art historian, I always show illustrated books, but every possible subject with illustrations or not. So here's a geography book with a map showing the course of the Nile. Um, here is a Sufi's guide to the constellations um, with a picture of uh, a, a constellation and the stars, which is nearby in Doha. Um, and then here, two books, the one on the left, you probably won't know what it's about, but it's actually, uh, well, I'll tell you, the one on the right, everyone can figure out what that is. It's a book of mathematics. The one on the left is actually a book on the preparation of medicines by Dioscorides, um, a translation of a Greek work. So there's a lot of very important, very interesting literature that's being, uh, in all subjects, that's being translated and written about using on these paper documents. But it was not just highfalutin, fancy stuff, that one of the oldest paper documents to survive, and which I show you is, is in the Oriental Institute in Chicago, is this bifolio, that is a folded sheet of paper from the earliest known manuscript of the Thousand Nights. And actually on the page on the other side, it says, Kitab Elf Leila. Um, and this book um, was fell apart. It, it's thought that this book fell apart and was taken and uh, was, it was found, this sheet of paper was found in an Egyptian garbage dump and um, has uh, practice writing on it by various authors various uh, people, one of whom was a, like a lawyer who was, plan who was practicing for the bar exam. And so he wrote out legal formulas on this sheet of paper, and which gives a date of um, 879. Um, so they know that it, this was garbage by 879 or scrap paper by 879. So they think that this was actually written 
about 800 in Damascus. Um, but the reuse of this paper by the law student um, shows how paper was still rather expensive for most people. The use of paper wasn't limited to Muslims. For example, a Greek on the left, there's a Greek text copied at Damascus at the same time at about 800, and thousands of paper documents dating between the 10th and the 14th century were accidentally preserved in a storeroom called the Geniza of the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Cairo. And these documents relating to the Jewish community included trousseau lists, letters, deeds, etc., and show how the economy in the medieval Muslim world was largely paper-based. For example, this letter was written by one guy named Abraham, who was the son of Solomon, on behalf of his father, um, Solomon, to Ephraim, who was a spiritual leader in Fustat, Old Cairo. And in it, Solomon introduces the bearer of the letter, Samuel, who was the son of Saul, who comes, who comes from the land of Khorasan, that is in northeastern Iran. And Samuel has shown the spiritual leader a letter of recommendation from someone named Sadia bin Moses, a merchant from Seville in Spain. So we have Fustat in the center, we have Khorasan to the east, and Seville in, to the west. And it shows how paper interconnected this world from Iran to the Iberian Peninsula. Paper led to a culture of books in the Muslim lands. This image of a library shows about 200 books in cubbies lying flat behind the readers. And it, is said, it was said that this is the first time in human history that someone could earn a living as a writer. The 10th century bibliographer, Nadim, who compiled the Kitab al-Fisrist, which was a catalog of the books, as he said, of all the peoples, Arab and foreign, existing in the language of the Arabs, that he had seen himself or that had been reported to him by a trustworthy source. And he organized the book into 10 categories, Holy Scripture, one, two, grammar and philology, three, history and biography, four, poetry, five, dialectical philosophy, and six, law and prophetic traditions. There were also four categories of secular subjects, philosophy and the secular sciences, eight legends and fables, nine doctrines of other religions, and finally, 10 alchemy. Um, in the English translation of the Fechrist, the index of the authors cited fills some 200 closely set pages with about 3,700 names. The libraries of the Fatimid caliphs in Cairo, of the Buyid rulers in Shiraz, or of the Umayyad rulers of Cordoba were all described as huge. For one example, the, the extraordinary quantities of books when Al-Hakam II added to the Mosque of Cordoba towards the end of the 10th century, his library had 400,000 titles. Now, maybe that's an exaggeration, but even at one-tenth of the number, it would have been 10 times more books than the largest library in contemporary Europe. And there's only one manuscript that is known to survive from this library. In contrast, European Christian libraries were remarkably small. This depiction showing the scribe Ezra from a huge parchment manuscript produced in Northern England in the eighth century, shows the scribe as an old man writing. And there are nine books in the chest behind him, 
um, which has doors to protect the contents as opposed to the open shelves of the Arab library. And I could go on with how many that one library had uh, 400 books, another one had 650 books, another one had 570 books. The um, in the 14th century, the papal library in Avignon had barely 2,000 books, and the richest library in Christendom was said to have been the library of the Sorbonne in Paris. In 1338, it had only 338 books that were available for consultation by readers, but they were chained to reading desks, and 1,728 books were, uh, were available for loan in the registers. However, 300 of them were listed as already lost. There are two reasons for this disparity between libraries in the Muslim and the Christian worlds. One was the manner in which manuscripts were copied and disseminated, and the other was the material used. I have no time to, today to discuss the advantages of the system of dictation used in the Muslim world, but it's clear that the advantages of paper were so great that eventually Muslims allowed even the Quran to be copied on paper. And we see in, that this begins in Iran um, in the 10th century and then spreads to the rest of the Muslim world. Um, here uh, in, on the left is the very famous um, manuscript of the Quran copied by Ibn Abu Web at Baghdad in the year 1000, now in the Chester Beatty Library. What, uh, and on the, on the right is a page from the so-called uh, anonymous Baghdad Quran copied 300 years later by Ahmed al-Surhawardi. What is absolutely amazing to me is that these are as legible today to any, anyone who can read Arabic as they were when they were written. And this is so, so different from other languages, where uh, other scripts, where if you try and read, uh, try and read Chaucer or uh, any European writer, from even 200 years ago, um, you have great, it, one has great difficulty. The, the affordances of this medium, the smoothness of paper, the cheapness, the relative cheapness, allowed, um, um, allowed calligraphers to develop new, more flowing, more legible scripts, and to add all sorts of aids to reading, which meant that more and more people were reading. Although paper had a great impact on book production and dissemination in the 9th and 10th centuries, this golden age of um, when it was transforming literary culture, paper had little impact on the visual arts at that time because of the development of scripts that took, uh, uh, apart from the development of scripts that took advantage of the medium's qualities. And this may be because paper, because although it was cheap, it was still too expensive to be used by most artists who occupied a much lower social position than did calligraphers and who would have continued to practice their, uh, their activities their, their, as drawing, such activities as drawing on reusable or washable flat surfaces, such as boards or the backs of tiles. In short, they practiced their art directly in or on their chosen medium. The changes, this changes during the 13th century, when for various reasons that are not entirely clear, the quality of paper produced in the Muslim world, particularly in Iran and Iraq, 
increased dramatic, dramatically. It may have been because of increased contact with China during the Mongol period or because of new techniques of preparing the fibers. In any event, before that time, if you had artistic ability and were a good draftsman, you went into the pottery business. In this schoolhouse scene, you can see the students, both boys and girls, I should um, mention together in the classroom, with are still around the teacher. They're still using wooden boards, wooden slates for practicing their alphabet, their writing, while the teacher has a book stand above his shoulder. After that time, you went to work illustrating books. Good or good artists went to work illustrating books. And the quality of painting on ceramics declines, but that in books increases dramatically. And the art of the illuminated, illustrated paper book became a major art form in much of the Muslim world, especially in the region between, uh, from Iran to the Ottoman Empire, Central Asia, in India in the four centuries after 1300. Similarly, in the period after 1300, we read increasingly of actual architectural plans being sent from one place to another, indicating that new methods were developed for coding and decoding information. This is the period when one can see increasingly consistencies of architectural style over greater distance in the Islamic lands, suggesting not only that builders may have moved from one place to another, but also that they started using plans, presumably drawn on paper. The earliest surviving examples of plans may date from the 15th century, and it is inconceivable that any of the great works of later Islamic architecture, such as I show you here, the Suleimani Mosque in Istanbul, um, would have been built without resource to recourse to pre preliminary drawings and plans. To return to the spread of paper and papermaking, Muslims introduced it into the Iberian Peninsula and Sicily by the year 1000, and Sicilian parchment documents state that they were originally copied on uh, they were originally copied on paper, um, paper originals, and then transferred to parchment for preservation. But there's no evidence that paper was ever made in medieval Sicily, although it is not impossible. The first Europeans to make paper were Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula, which is known to have produced paper at several centers, particularly um, Khathiva, which is known in Arabic as Shativa, where Shabti or an early, was an early term, term for paper. Near this is uh, the city is located near Valencia a region known for both the production of flax and a lot of water, having a lot of water. So it's perfectly uh, logical to um, have a papermaking industry there. The, 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 it was followed by a period when the Christian kingdoms of the North conquered the Muslim regions of the South. And it is thought that Muslims continued to produce paper under Christian rule. As it became advantageous to convert to Christianity, one assumes that Muslim paper makers also converted, and as land shifted ownership from Muslims to Christians, there was an increased need for documentation in a hurry. So in the same way that the early Muslims needed paper for documents to administer the empire, these Christian rulers needed paper um, 
to make to make documents, deeds uh, uh, for the newly conquered lands. Um, and at the same time, incidentally, the old in Europe, they had used lead seals to seal documents to attest their validity, and that there's a shift now to use uh, paper uh, uh, wax seals on the paper documents because they were not they were less likely to tear the documents themselves. Spanish paper is characterized by these mysterious zigzag lines that you can see on the left, which seem to have been introduced in the paper to make them uh, make it easier to fold um, when putting making into a book. Um, but Spanish um, production declined very soon in the face of Italian competition, competition beginning in the 13th century. And by the mid 13th century, uh, by the mid 12th century, uh, Genoese merchants were using Spanish or Arab paper uh, for writing accounts. And there were also references uh, to Genoese experiments with papermaking uh, following the Spanish model in the early 13th century. There seems to be have been some early experimental papermaking at Amalfi on the coast, Italian coast south of Naples, which was a great trading center with the Orient. But most important was Fabriano on the east side of the Apennine Mountains. Um, by the mid 13th century, Fabriano was producing great quantities of paper, thanks to the ready supply of mountain water that flowed through the town. And here's an imaginative view of the papermaking at Fabriano. And its success was based on several technical developments, including the use of water power to power the stampers that grind up the fibers, trademarks to identify the product, and new gelatin sizing, which gave paper a harder finish to the uh, gave it, it a harder finish, uh, which was better able to resist the stiff quill pens that e Europeans used rather than the reed pens that were traditionally used by writers in the Muslim lands. The rise of European papermaking spelled the gradual end of papermaking in much of the Arab world, as European mechanical mills could produce paper more efficiently and cheaper, and the Italians dumped poor quality paper in the Middle East. Uh, the Mamluk historian Kalkashandi decried the poor quality of European paper, and Muslim jurists in North Africa had to rule on whether it was acceptable to copy the Quran on paper that had Christian symbols in their watermarks. In the, um, and the um, judge ruled that just as the Quran superseded early revelations, the writing of the Quran erased whatever was on the paper it was written on. Some fine paper continued to be made in Iran, the Ottoman Empire, in India until the 19th century, and the rise of printing, which demanded greater quantities and different qualities of paper. But that's a different story for a different time. Um, as I tried to show you today, the Arab Islamic contribution to the history of paper should not be ignored. So the next time you reach for us, the paper at the office copier or wherever, Remember that the word ream comes from the old French and Spanish words reim and resma, which come from the Arabic risma, meaning bundle or bale. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Professor Bloom. That was a, a wonderful um, survey of, of the, the fascinating history of paper in the Muslim world, and it gives us 
gives rise perhaps to opportunity for a good number of, of questions and ways to in, engage. Um, I'm before going to the q and I'm going to take the prerogative of of being uh, here. The moderator just asked a question of my own, and, and that's a. Uh, I'm working on Morocco at the moment, mostly on the 17th century. And one of the things I found most striking about the intellectual landscape at this time point is the large number of rural Zawaya or Sufi lodges that were centers of learning and that almost supplanted the urban centers at that time. And that opens up the question, listening to your talk, is to what extent is, is paper a, a, uh, an urban phenomenon in the Muslim world? And to what extent is it, uh, a, um, does it make its way into the rural hinterlands? And, and, and if you could also, if you could turn off your share screen, then maybe we'll okay. be able to just yes, Exactly. All right. Um, stop share. Okay. There we yeah. go. Okay. Excellent. Um, a great question. Um, you know, it reminds me that there is this problem uh, that one encounters that, that in general, um, one considers um, Islamic civilization to be an oral, traditionally an oral culture. And that in the transmission of books, that you didn't copy a book by uh, reading it, looking at it. You copied it by having it dictated to you. Right. And so the oral transmission is far more important than verbal transmission. There's a story told about Ghazali, um, who was stopped by a, a, a um, who was accosted by a robber out in the middle of nowhere. And he and the robber said, "You know, give me all of your stuff." And Ghazali said, "You know, take everything, but don't take my books." And the robber turns to Ghazali and says, "What are you?" And he says, "I'm a scholar." And he says. Well, you should have memorized all the books. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, it's, it, 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 yeah, you're probably right that, well, certainly some paper made its way to villages. Um, mm -hmm. Just as paper, we, I mean, you look at places like Timbuktu and where these manuscripts that made, uh, that there's a great deal of written knowledge that's preserved in them. But there's also a great deal of oral knowledge which clearly, um, you know, we, we don't have, it was, um, it was preserved, it's only preserved in the verbal transmission through, let us say, your Sufi lodges. So, I mean, I think that all, in many cases, uh, a lot of, you know, material items, I mean, whether it's fancy tiles or, you know, ceramics or, or urban phenomena. And this is what we tend to study because they they leave more traces than do the verbal um, transmissions. Thank I you. That, does that? Yeah, no, no, that does. That answers that answers my question. I have some further questions, but I am going to turn to the the questions I see popping up here in the uh, in the chat. Um, and I was. There is a question about whether there is any traditional handmade paper makers in the UAE, which I'm not sure Professor Bloom can speak to. I can't speak to that. I would love to know if there are, though. Um, I mean, there probably, they, I would probably, I, I don't know, but I would probably assume that there are. That The thing is that there's been a revival in this, in traditional paper making, as an art form. I mean, that people are not, people are not making paper to, to write books on, but you have artists 
who are making artist books, that is, books as, as works of art themselves, who may be making the paper. I mean, I can think that there are probably several I can think of um, who are making the paper and then decorating or writing on the paper or doing whatever they are and then binding it together as a work of art. And so if you, wherever you have artists, you have people doing that kind of thing. And since there are artists in the UAE, I imagine. So that, but that does raise the question of, you intimated towards the end of your talk that, um, that papermaking in the Muslim world ended, I believe, in the 19th century, if I understood that. Yeah, last. yeah. But I mean, there's no continuity through to the present. This would be, if we were making it today, it's more of a reimagining of previous. Right. One, of, one of the big problems, I went, uh, years ago, I went to a workshop at the um, British Library on uh, trying to reconstruct medieval Arabic papermaking. And we had experts from all over, conservators and such, all gathering together making paper. And we all, you know, got wet and had a lot of fun and talking and stuff. And suddenly, and they, someone said, well, this is, this is medieval Islamic paper. And I said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't, doesn't look like anything. And then these various curators and conservators who had sample in their collections, had samples of different papers from different countries at different times, from you know medieval Spain to Egypt to Iran, brought in their samples of paper and we put them out on a light table, and you could see how very different they were. So what what people say is Islamic paper is really right. is traditional handmade paper, but it varied enormously. The fibers were different. The ways the fibers were beaten were different. Um, the um, the 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 screens on which they were made. It's all very, very different. I'm going to try to pull together a few of the questions there. One, one uh, quick one is, is, is rag paper similar to laid paper? I don't know the term. Uh, okay. Um, there are, rag paper is just what it's made from. So made from rags. Though modern rag paper tends to be made from like textile waste. That is the lint that's cap, caught up in um, in textile mills, for example, that in, you know, where they're making socks or underwear or something like, well, you know, you have a lot of, it's not actually grinding up the, grinding up old rags as they did in the past. Um, laid paper is just a term for paper that is, has, um, they're, they're, the screen on which the paper is made has parallel lines and that, and then uh, going in one direction, and then um, at far greater spacing uh, at right angles to them. So sort of, um, and so it's an uneven kind of weave, and that is laid paper. And it's um, uh, it, in contrast, wove paper is made on a screen that's like a window screen that's evenly woven in both directions. And wove paper is what you normally use now for for printing because the, and for watercolor or whatever you're using, because it doesn't, the texture doesn't show through. Whereas laid paper, uh, uh, whereas laid paper has this distinct lines and medieval Islamic paper generally is laid paper. That is, it was made on a screen that was made of vegetable fibers that were uh, laid parallel and sewn together with something like horsehair or silk thread or something. 
Was there a benefit in that in terms of writing uh, in terms of that? Or? It didn't really it didn't really matter. I mean, you don't feel you you didn't feel that it was just there are these microscopic differences in the uh, how how much fiber is is deposited depending on whether there's a the 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 wire or the the fiber of the screen or just uh, the space in between. So when you hold it up to the light, you see this pattern, but you don't really see it normally. Um, sometimes you see it w when you, you, like the dirt, when you're looking at a dirty manuscript that's been handled a lot, sometimes there's a slight difference in the dirt that accumulates where people's thumbs have touched the manuscript. Right, got it. Um, this is a question of shifting slightly to calligraphy is because the consistency of the calligraphy, which I believe that you you commented on a, a couple of times. Uh, we have one question here. I, I found it incredibly interesting to see the consistency of the inflection and stroke of calligraphy in Baghdad and the 1307 Quran manuscripts compared to today's Islamic art and artists such as Ismail Gulji. Could you briefly expand on how this form was maintained through Arabian Asian countries such as India, Pakistan? Well, I think that that. Um there's this sense that one that these that scripts were developed, the classic scripts were developed in this medieval period, from the time of Ibn al-Bawab around a thousand to Ahmed al-Sukhravardi in the 14th, early 14th century. You have this. This is the period when the classic scripts, the six scripts, the majuscule and minuscule, they're paired scripts that were used and spread throughout much of the Muslim world, not in the Maghreb, for example, where there was an entirely different uh, aesthetic of scripts. But this classical Persian scripts spread, went from, um, you know, Egypt and Turkey to India. And they were considered the best that there was. I mean, that there was, and everything since then has been sort of a you know, a riff on it, but that no one has ever claimed to improve on these classical scripts, these, these classical scripts. And one, one tries in sort of modern um, Western art, one constantly is trying to improve on what went before. But in classical calligraphy, one always sort of like says, well, I want to make it indistinguishable from that of the master. So, okay. you know, so in modern, modern calligraphers are playing with these ideas where they're trying to emulate the master, but also be individual. Right. Got it. What about the papermakers themselves? Were they, do we know if they were held in high prestige? If you were at a court, would you have your own papermaker or are we no. to think of? No, I, I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, it was a dirty, messy business where you had, you know, you had to spend your time with your hands in the water. Um, and, you know, I... Um, could you go I, to the marketplace? Would you find, if you went, could you, if you went to the marketplace, would you find paper there? Or did you have to have a, a specific relationship I with think it? You, I, I would sure, there were certainly paper sellers. I mean, you know, the warak, I mean, is, you know, normally, I mean, it's the, the stationer, I think. But, you know, we know from like, um, Abjahith, that um, he would go to, in Baghdad, he would go to the Wadak and borrow books. You could borrow a book from, a written book. And, you know, it was sort of functioned as a lending library. So, um, you know, I think they, they were stationers in the sense that I don't think they exist anymore, that 
I, as I, I remember as a child that there were stationery stores that also had books, um, lending libraries in them. Interesting. Um, sorry, I'm, there's a great deal of interest in the in the questions. But one briefly, can you tell us something about the, the Chinese postage stamp that you opened the talk with? Is it uh, when and where it was used? Is it? Recent? Yeah, I think it's it's a modern. It was a modern stamp. I mean, it's sort of like you know our commemorative stamps of you know heroes of you know the um, as if anybody uses postage stamps anymore. <laughs> since <laughs> that's true. Um, but I, you know, it's fa- it, 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 I mean, I thought it's fascinating. I mean, I, I remember meeting this woman uh, when I was working on my book. She's a specialist in, in Chinese paper, the history. And so I went to see her and she said, what are you working on? And I said, the history of paper in the Islamic world. And she said, well, you know, it was invented in China. And I said, yes, yes, yes. And I said, but I'm interested in what happened after it was invented in China. And she said, yes, but you know, it was invented in China. <laughs> and this went on for a while. And then she said, you know, when I went to China, I went to the village where it was invented and I met the descendants of Tsai Lun, the man who invented it, you know, and she was absolutely convinced that, you know, she had, she had met, you know, the lineal descendants of this guy. So, you know, there's a prestige. Prestige. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, is when it comes to the durability of paper, did the type of ink that was used, did that make a difference? Can we the it's can very, we, it's, yes? Yeah. Well, there are two kind, you know, there are two words for ink in Arabic. There's um khabr and madad. And one of them is used for on parchment manuscripts, and one of them is used on um, paper manuscripts. Um, one of them is made from carbon, lamp black. And is that's mixed with like gum Arabic, and so it sticks to the surface of the paper. And the other one um, is made from uh, tan, um, uh, tan, tannin and metallic salts, and is sort of like a dye, and that stains the, the. But it's also very acidic, and when sometimes writers did not know because they didn't live long enough to see the effects of this on their documents yeah. or whatever, but they would use the wrong kind of ink or mix the two to get, let's say the, the tannin ink was not black enough. They'd add some um, carbon, carbon ink to it. And so you get these ink where sometimes you see that the actual letters have been eaten away by the acid of the paper or by the acid of the ink. Um, this I saw this actually in some of the Geniza documents that I looked at in the Cambridge Library, where they were using the wrong kind of ink. But paper itself, like there's another question here about what what uh, obviously you've given us some examples of paper that goes back over a thousand years. That I mean, well over a thousand years. But what is the general lifespan of? Or can one even say that because the paper has such great variability in terms of its? Well, there's no there's no problem. I mean, the problem. The problem with modern paper is the acid in the paper. Right. And that, um, you know, would people say, oh, newsprint is terrible. Newsprint is terrible because it's cheap and it's made very quickly using acid and harsh chemicals. But you can, if you make paper from pure cellulose, um, or as, as the cellulose is as pure as you can get, it will last forever as long as it's kept dry. 
Um, but, you know, like all organic materials, if it's wet, it can start to um, rot. Mold will grow on it. So, you know, there's no reason that um, these documents, I mean, we saw these, these books from the 9th and 10th centuries that are really, they're, they're flexible. They're not like, you know, 19th or 20th century French books that fall apart in your hands, you know, um, because they were made from inexpensive paper. Got it. And um, it is somewhat, I guess, a, a technical question, but are, are tinted paper and silhouette paper, do they come from within the Muslim world or are these bar papers that were taken from other cultural spheres? I think other cultural, yeah. I mean, I've never heard of, I mean, there is this, there's a tradition of marble paper, marbling paper, which is used and was used in uh, very much in the West for decorating book and papers in books and covers of books, um, where you float colors on a pool in a pool of water or a pool of thickened water of some sort, and then you lay the paper down and the colors come onto the paper. And that's a technique that was invented, we believe, in Iran and Turkey, and then used and then transmitted to Europe. And our, this is more, I guess, a social history. Again, coming back, I think there's a lot of interest in the question of who makes the paper and how, how the paper comes to market and questions like this, in part also, is this a gendered activity? Do we assume that men were largely responsible for making paper? Do we have- I, I, th I think, I mean, I think so. Um, yeah. That, you know, there, there's a lot of mystery, I mean, out there. And um, I was always amazed at how little we know. I mean, we have, as far as I know, there are three- books, three um, recipes for, you know, for making paper that from the entire medieval Muslim period, one from Yemen, one from Iran, and one from North Africa. And they all give contradictory information about how you do it. And, you know, they, they're, not, they're not really, um, I don't think they're how-to manuals in the sense of, um, uh, you know, popular mechanics or you know, the fine woodworking or something where you read it, read it, and then you know they're they're more sort of like telling in, educated people um, about the world that they live in and how things are things are generally done, but they're not instructional. And I never see any reference to women in any of these, in any aspect. Um, so I'm sure you know if if I mean we don't know whether how. We don't know how the the uh, the manufacturer was organized. Whether it was done in in house, that is, people had little paper mills in the in their backyards, or whether there were larger um, larger establishments. You know, if you're talking, there's something like I don't know. There's an estimate from the World Survey of Islamic Manuscripts that there are something like two million pre-modern Arabic manuscripts that survive today. And so you have to assume that many more were lost. Well, you know, that's an awful lot of paper to be made in the backyard by family. So I assume that there's a certain kind of industrial production, which raises a whole question about um, mills and milling and water technology, which um, is totally unknown. I mean, whether hydraulic, there were hydraulic stampers used or whether you had people actually using their feet to power these stampers to um, pulverize the, the rags and the fibers. 
Um, very little is known about the, that kind of technology in the Muslim world. And that, that actually ties back in with your comment that when Europe began to industrialize the production of paper, it drove out the production of paper in the Muslim world. Right, to some right. And, and Europe, of course, had, uh, that had a more potential energy in its water power. That is because European um, was, Europe was wetter. So it had a lot of streams and stuff. I mean, there's the Nile is there and the, you know, the Tigris and the Euphrates are there, but they're very large, low, uh, slow flowing. Mm -hmm. And with, whereas European uh, streams that come off the Alps or the Apennines had a lot of potential energy in their water power so that they could power mills. And this was adopted by, by the paper makers. Right. So it yeah. was, it, and they also had access to um, that to fibers through uh, to the rags. Interestingly, the Muslims used all different kinds of materials. They used both raw materials from plants like flax or whatever, and rags to make their paper. Europeans never used raw fibers from plants, mm -hmm. and one wonders uh, why that was lost, how that was lost in translation why Europeans didn't know that you could make it. And eventually they had to rediscover it. Oh, that is interesting that they, so yeah, it wasn't just a matter of preference. It was a matter of ignorance on their right, part. Right, right. Uh, when paper, when people, when printing did reach the Muslim world and, and was ramped up in a, in a larger fashion, what paper was being printed on? Where was that paper coming from? That's a, a good question. And because... I, I don't know that anyone has sort of worked on that. On the that there are plenty of there are plenty of um, studies now of the origins of printing in the Arab world and in the uh, Persian world. Okay, you know, but I don't know of anybody who's actually looked at uh, at the paper on, and it sort of examined it. I imagine that in many cases it's European paper because. Um, it tend it could be made probably in a more in more standard um, sizes that would fit for the printing press. That for a manuscript book, there's no reason to have a large sheet of paper. You can just fold any old sheet of paper in half, and that will make a book. But for printing, it's much more efficient to print many pages together. Let's right. at least. So and then fold them and then cut them after they're printed, and so that suggests that the larger sheets made in Europe in these standard sizes would have been used in standard size printing presses rather than manuscripts, which could be any size that the calligrapher wanted. And that printing that would be largely a nineteenth-century year. Uh, it's certainly a, there. There, yeah. there are there's a uh, there are few experiments in Istanbul in the eighteenth century. There are. Uh, there are Jewish presses in the Ottoman Empire early on, but Arabic printing really starts in the um, uh, in the 19th century. And the problem, of course, is translating the beautiful qualities of Arabic script with its connected letters into to the the cold, uh, um, you know, forms of of, of metallic type. And in Iran, this was solved with the invention of lithography, which allowed someone to actually do calligraphy on a, on a 
surface and then transfer it to a stone for printing. So you get the flowing lines of Persian Nostalic script are easily transferable through, through lithography. But, okay, I guess more for my edification than anything else, but lithography is, is a kind of a, a temporary sort of, um, technology between the introduction that then is supplanted by the full, uh, no, continues down to no, It continues to use because, yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't, didn't realize that we still right. I mean, I mean now, of course, with you know um, computers and lasers and stuff, yeah, and laser yeah. printing and stuff, it's all you know uh, moot. But um, no lithography. Really, I mean, you know, many things are. Um, I mean, I, I have to say that I, when I was a student and got my my first copy of Macrisi's Chitas, um, I bought in Cairo. I was trying to read the title page, and it said. Taba Jadida Bil Ufset. And I I was trying to figure out what the root of Ufset was. And yes. you know <laughs> it yes. took me yes. a while, but so you know, it was it's certain this is used for it's a very easy way of, you know, all of those, if you look, all of those medieval texts that have been reprinted in Beirut or whatever are offset. Right. Yes. Does um I'm not, I'm not sure about this question, but is this the type of Arabic script? I mean, does the fact that we are writing from right to left in this um, sort of this cursive connected fashion, does that have an effect on what paper is used or does the paper no. not? No, that's no. entirely. I mean, I think that what, what does is that this, um, the smoothness of paper sort of allowed the development of these um, connected uh, and the encouragement of connected scripts. Right. No. Yes. That that makes sense. Um, well, here's here's a, uh, I guess, a more mundane or shall we say worldly question. But some of these manuscripts that you were able to show us, or the, some of the the paper that you were able to show us, this has today has, I guess, the question is in part, what is the the value that it holds? It must hold considerable value. But is the I guess the larger question is how have we come today as a kind of a, a capitalist market that also deals with art and sets arbitrary prices on art, but also looks at paper. What is the ways, what are the ways in which we value this paper now? I mean, how does it get its value? I, I'm trying to ask two questions, I suppose, with that. One is just the real, like, aren't these, many, these manuscripts worth a lot of money? But two, there is a question of, is there, are there larger cultural forces such as uh, heritage, the desire to recover a certain period of um, Muslim cultural prominence uh, that give this these types of materials value in both, say, the Middle East and in sort of collector circles within the European and North absolutely. American. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. If all you have to do is go to the Sotheby's or Christie's catalogs of the auctions and see what the prices are paid for manuscripts, and that, and also. Um, for example, that Sufi, a Sufi manuscript that I showed you um, is now considered to be the oldest surviving copy, um, which predates the, uh, the one in Oxford, um, which was for many years thought to be the oldest, uh, and it was 100 years older. Um, but it turns out that they, someone faked the colophon, that is the, the date on the end, at the end of it, to increase its value, to make it older than it actually was. 
and that it was only the sleuthing by a very eminent historian of science who was able to prove that you know the the date was could not be accurate. These these manuscripts are incredibly valuable, and um, not only for their content, um, uh, but for their their sheer physicality and that they were you know they were treasured over the centuries and preserved. Um, uh, and you know we can um, see, for example, one scholar in Belgium has made a specialty of studying the manuscripts of the great Egyptian historian Macrisi, and that has identified the the actual manuscripts that he wrote in his own hand that uh, were on used paper. I showed you one one example that he would you know buy like leftover paper at the stationer that had already writing on it, but there was space to write. And then he, there's a manuscript that I saw in Michigan that has basically post-it notes inserted into the manuscript in his own handwriting saying, I've got to add this, that, and the other thing here. So, you know, it, 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 gives, you, it, it gives us a window into the, the ways in which people composed and the ways in which people thought. So of course they're very valuable. Yeah, one thing I really appreciate about your work is that it's, uh, I mean, it's been, it's been uh, as you said at the beginning, some 20 years since the book was published, but it, it also is a, a testimony both to something that more and more people, I guess, in my, the broader field of Islamic history have been paying attention to since then, which is also that the degree to which the manuscripts, the paper that we have tell is, should be understood not just as a vehicle for its content, but of itself worthy of study in its own right. And that's something that you've really, I think, illustrated beautifully here today. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it is, these, these are artifacts, and you can learn as much about you know, the, the society by studying the artifact. I mean, this is basically what art historians do. That, right. you know, they, they, they look at the material materiality and this is becoming, even in art history, a sort of new um, approach or a popular approach, the material materiality. So, you know, I, I've taken actually several years of summer classes in bookbinding and to right. learn how Islamic, and there's a whole really interesting story in how m Muslim bookbinders put together their books, and that it, there isn't just one kind of bookbinding. There are all different kinds, and it all depended on how that. And then you start learning that, for example, um, we think when we see a book, uh, an Arabic book on display, it's normally open flat, right? But most people, when they read books, held them in their hands and maybe open them to 100 degrees at the maximum so that they were held closer and that book stands like the one I showed in on that ceramic were never meant to open a book flat, but were meant, and so the binding necessarily functions to preserve that kind of book rather than to open it flat the way Western books are. Right. So right. that starts telling us things about, yeah. Yeah, and that, that um yeah, no, I, I was, and also there's another one point that I guess I wanted to emphasize from what you said, which in some ways there is no such thing as, there is no Islamic paper, just as the same way as that now the very category of Islamic art in some ways has right, been interrogated. Right. And then now we have to like think more in, in regional terms. And I think it's it's worthwhile 
just emphasizing again the diversity and richness of the different forms of paper within the Muslim world, which was, of course, connected through these uh, political. But you know, the, 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 the problem with sort of like saying that there's no Islamic art or no Islamic paper and stuff like that is what do you replace it with? And then, then you sort of forget it. So, you know, you have to balance out and say sort of like, yes, with a caveat or with a little asterisk after it, you know, this is what we mean. But there is this fascinating story that could be uh, uh, encapsulated under the term of, quote, Islamic paper, even if we don't know there isn't such a thing. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a useful heuristic in that, in that sense. I have one last question for you. This is, a, I think, a good question to, to perhaps end this on. Um, so looking at your book published 20 years ago, what has changed? Is there anything that you would now say differently or in scholarship that in the last 20 years has made you think differently about what you expressed when you first wrote it? Yes. Well, you know, as I said, I came to this subject quite by accident and that I sort of stumbled in by the back door as an art historian, and only subsequently realized that there is a whole uh, new um, academic field of the history of the book. Right. As a, as as and the you know and so I think that I would if I had to do it again over again I would probably be more involved in the larger questions of the history of the book. Um, which I didn't really know about until after I after it came out. Well, it is such a, a wonderful book, and, and it's also wonderful to have it in Arabic. And we are very grateful that you were able to join us today. I see many people in the questions have asked if this uh, your talk is, is being recorded, and it, it should be so. It should be available at some point in the future for those of us who weren't able, uh, those who weren't able to join us. So I'd like to thank you on behalf of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for all of us here in Abu Dhabi and around the world who have been watching you today to, to thank you one more time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye all. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.